John chapter 17. Let's turn there with me. And I guess back to what I was saying, those of you leaving this week, goodbye. Have a great semester. We'll see you. Make sure you watch your emails for the ski trip if you are wanting to participate in that over Christmas break. And we'll be praying for you and thinking of you. John chapter 17, the message I've entitled, The Faithful Intercession of Christ. I'm going to read our text, and then we'll look at it. It is a large text, so settle in. That's all I can say. Beginning in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Robert Murray McShane, a famous Christian dead guy who Wes quoted on Wednesday, had many things to say concerning prayer. As a result, to simply introduce the direction of our text this morning, I want you to hear from him again. He said this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. This reality of Christ praying for those who are his brings overwhelming assurance that Jesus loves his people abundantly. Consider how you feel when one of your brothers or sisters in Christ lets you know that they are praying for you. Or even more than that, when they pray for you and you actually hear them pleading on your behalf to the omnipotent God of the universe. You feel cared for and loved by that individual in those moments. Now, consider if that person who stopped to pray for you was Jesus, the perfect Son of God who is perfectly in tune with his Father and prays perfectly according to his Father's will. The deep love and joy experienced in this moment would be transformative. This is where we find ourselves in our text this morning. Jesus, the perfect God-man who has been instructing his disciples and preparing them for his imminent death and departure concludes their time together in the upper room by making divine intercession on their behalf. After the roller coaster of emotions that they had experienced in the, in the previous hours of the evening, and with the roller coaster to continue after they leave the upper room, this intercessory prayer on their behalf, in their hearing, no doubt began to solidify in their hearts 
in their minds the deep love that the Lord Jesus had for them. And the blessed reality that we need to understand at the outset of our study this morning is that this faithful high priest, Jesus the righteous one, lives to make intercession for you and me who are in Christ this morning. As McShane said, regardless of his location, Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for you. That truth manifests Christ's deep love for our people. And it ought to provide believers with great assurance and joy in the midst of life's difficulties. With that being said, let's turn our attention to our faithful high priest and his prayer for his disciples that is recorded in our text. In this text, in Christ's high priestly prayer, we see several characteristics of his eternal love expressed for his people. And the first characteristic I want you to note is that this love, this expressed love is divine love. It is divine love. And we see that in verses 6 through 8. In the first five verses of this chapter, we have seen Christ asking his Father to glorify him through the cross. This glory that Christ was requesting was a, was a shared intra-Trinitarian glory by the divine Godhead. Christ was praying to be glorified so that in his glorification, which took place on the cross, the Father would be glorified. And the ultimate display of that glory was going to be through his sacrificial death and subsequent resurrection. Notice how God-centered our Lord is as he begins his prayer. As he speaks over and over in those first five verses of, of his own glory and the glory of his Father. Over and over the personal pronoun you is used. Him directing his prayer to his Father is used. It's very God-centered. And I appreciate where Wes left us on Wednesday with the challenging question, are our prayers drenched with the glory of God? Christ's certainly was. Because that's where prayer must begin, with the glory of God. And that's where Jesus begins. But in verse 6, which begins our text, Christ now transitions from praying for the glory of God to making intercession on behalf of those men that he cared for and that he loved deeply. And we see his divine love on display in this beginning few verses of his intercession. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and they truly understood that I came forth from you and believed that you sent me. We see in these first three verses his description, Christ's description of how the disciples came to believe in him. He states that he has manifested the Father's name to these men that the, the Father gave him. And there are several observations that we need to make here. First, to manifest your name means that Jesus had revealed the attributes and the character of God to these men in his three-year ministry with them. The name of God is synonymous with the person of God, with his character, with his nature. He had revealed God to these men in those years. Jesus had faithfully disclosed the truth of God to these men that he loved. And they received the truth. Look at the end of verse 6. It says they have, they have kept your word. You know, the idea of them keeping your, his word is that they paid attention to it and, and they persisted in obedience to its demands. This verb, kept, is in the perfect tense, meaning that, that there was a point in time where they received by faith what Jesus had revealed to them, 
And now they were continuing on in their obedience to the truth. This statement at the end of verse 6 is evidence of their conversion. The fact that they, they had kept his word. They came to know it, they came to believe it, they came to understand it, and they persisted, persisted in obedience to it. This marks these men whom Jesus is praying for as genuine disciples. Consider the assurance they received in hearing these words from Jesus at this time. That they were truly his. That they had kept his word. That these men belonged to him. That they were indeed genuine disciples. They must have been filled with joy in those moments as Jesus was was bringing them before the Father. Committing them to him. The second observation that needs to be made is the source of the disciples' faith. Look again at verse 6. He says, The men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me. These men had been elected by the Father before the foundation of the world. We know that from Ephesians 1.4. And he chose them before the foundation of the world. And now they had been given to Christ for Christ to purchase and redeem and then to train them as his ambassadors. The the verb verb gave here has the idea of of entrusting to the care of another. These men were entrusted to Christ by the Father. These verses are full of the reality of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation. These men were given to Christ only because The Father had given them to Christ. They had not in and of themselves come to Christ alone. They had not conjured up some sort of faith, some sort of belief. They had not awakened their dead hearts, their dead souls to come to the knowledge of Christ. The fact that they came to know Christ and now they were keeping his word so they were genuine disciples is only because the Father in eternity past had chosen them before the foundation of the world and had brought them to this point to recognize who Christ was and he opened their eyes and he awakened, he quickened their dead hearts and they became followers of Christ. The same is true for you and me this morning. If you are sitting here and you love Jesus, and you know Jesus, and you are committed to Jesus, you have come to him, it is only because of the Father's great love for you. It is only because the Father, according to Ephesians chapter 1, chose you before the foundation of the world. That is what he is praying in this verse. That is what Jesus is telling his disciples. He is, he is telling them as he prays to the Father at the source, the source of them being in Christ, the source of them being in that room, in that moment, and belonging to the Savior, was God himself. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus continues this explanation regarding his father being the source of the disciples' salvation, saying, these men have come to know him as Messiah. It says, they they know that everything you have given me is from you. That is, that they have come to know him as Messiah. And this is all because of the Father's divine love. Verse 8 refers to the words that they have been given by Jesus from the Father. He said, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them. These are the words of eternal life that Jesus had spoken to them. You remember Peter. You remember at the end of John 6. John 6 is is, is almost a devastating chapter. I mean, there's so much awesome things, so many awesome things that happen in that chapter. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he goes on to explain that he is the bread of life. But the end of chapter 6, it says, many of those who were following him walked away from him. They proved in that moment to not be his disciples. Why? Because Jesus said, if you're going to come to me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they knew what he was saying, but they didn't know what he was saying. And they did not want to come to him exclusively. Those were hard things, and Jesus even says that, that these are hard things. But you remember what he said to Peter? You remember what he asked his disciples after that? He says, are you guys going to walk away from me too? Peter says, 
where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. See, that's what Jesus had spoken to his disciples. They had come to know him. And notice they received these words and truly understood the reality that Jesus had come from God. And they believed. That's the idea of belief there in verse 8. They had come to know him. They believed this. They accepted Jesus' words as true. And they comprehended the spiritual reality that he was the Messiah. That he was the promised one sent by the, by the Father. They believed this. They trusted in Christ. They entrusted themselves to Christ. Consider again the the confidence and the assurance that the disciples received from, from hearing this from the mouth of Jesus. They were listening to him pray these words. Jesus spoke nothing that was false. In those moments, they were being assured of the reality that they belonged to him. Assurance that their faith was steeped in their omnipotent, faithful father. These men, you remember these men, the ones who had struggled with their faith up to this very moment in the upper room. These men of of weak faith. These men of profound imperfection. These men who in this moment were still confused about many things. It was these very men that Jesus was affirming as his true believing disciples to his father in their presence. What loving affirmation and encouragement that they desperately needed. Friends, consider this truth as it corresponds to your own heart and life. Your moments of doubt, your moments of of disbelief, your moments of confusion, your, your moments of disobedience, your moments of weak, tiny faith, your stifling imperfection. These things can be so discouraging. As often we we have such an inward view of ourselves. So we, we refuse to look at the bigger picture and we get caught up with our imperfections in so many ways as these disciples had done. Listen. If you sincerely trust Jesus and believe in him, these words are so encouraging for you because you belong to him. He is keeping you. He is caring for you. Even when you are barely limping along in this life because of the love of the Father and the perfect obedience of the Son, He is loving you, and he is holding you. That's what the disciples were experiencing in this moment. They were experiencing those kinds of realities fill their heart and their mind. As Jesus prayed for them and expressed his love for them by committing them to the Father. How can your heart not be overwhelmed by the divine love of God that Jesus is expressing here? It has to be. We're so undeserving. This leads us then to a second characteristic of Jesus' eternal love expressed in his intercession for these men, and that is that it is a definitive love. It is a definitive love. And we see that in verses 9 through 16. This definitive love becomes clear through his specific requests for his disciples exclusively, not for the world at large. It's beginning in verse 9 that this prayer becomes specifically intercessory as Jesus petitions his Father on the disciples' behalf. I want you to notice first in verses 9 through 10 the particular recipients of his his petition. 
the particular recipients of his petition. Look again at verse 9. He says, I ask on their behalf, their behalf. In the context, it is clear that, that the pronoun there is referring to the disciples and other believers by extension, which he will explain at the end of his prayer. We don't have that yet, but he will explain that at the end of his high priestly prayer. And then he gives this exclusion. So he says, I ask on their behalf, but notice then the exclusion. He says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. The world in this context are are those who do not believe in Christ. They are those who are marked by a satanic godlessness. And they perpetuate a system of godliness controlled by their father, the devil. It was the world that they were living in who had rejected Jesus and his disciples. The the disciples in this moment knew exactly what he was saying. Knew exactly the exclusion that was being given here. Christ's petition is exclusive for his people. For those whom the Father had given him, specifically here in our context, the disciples... This is an aspect of Christ's specific mediatorial high priestly work on behalf of those who belong to him. And listen, Jesus bonifies this request by by asserting to the unity of the divine Godhead. Verse 10, as he says, And all things are mine, that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. In other words, because these men belong to you, and you have given them to me, and We are unified in divine nature. I am requesting this of you, Father. Notice Jesus is asserting his his divinity. He is asserting his his equality with the Father, which, which assures that this particular request on behalf of these particular men will be answered. And it will be answered on behalf of those who have glorified Christ by their faith in him. You see that there in verse 10. And I have been glorified in them. And we see then in verse 11 what Jesus is asking from his father. This request comes in the middle of the verse. He says, he says keep them in your name. This request is the petition for preservation. It's, he's, he's asking the father on behalf of these particular men, this exclusive group, To preserve them. That's what the verb keep means. It means to preserve from harm. It means to preserve from from apostasy, from temptation, from being crushed by by the persecution and the ploys of the devil. That's what Jesus is asking of his Father here. Keep them from these things, Father. Christ asks his Father to preserve these men spiritually because he is leaving this world. But, he is, but, but they are going to remain in this world. He is going to be gone. They are going to remain. What's the implication of that? Well, it's that they desperately needed to be protected by the Father from this world. Uh, Jesus continues laying out the purposes for this petition in the rest of verses 11 through 16. And there are, there are several purposes that I want you to note. He explains several reasons why he's asking his father to preserve the disciples. And and it's important to note that that because of the divine nature of these purposes, so so it's Christ who is asking. And so so because of his divine nature, because of the reality that this this is God the Son asking God the Father for these things, it's important to note that these purposes also function as results. That these things are going to happen. Jesus isn't sending up a wishful thinking prayer. This is a prayer that is perfectly in tune with the revealed will of God. And so the results of this are inevitable. This brings hope and assurance that in the reality that, that God secures us through Christ. And the first purpose is there at the end of verse 11. You see it, it is so that they 
will be unified so that they may be one even as we are one. This is spiritual unity. It's a spiritual unity which is produced by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This unity that Jesus is praying for is possessed by all true believers and is is centered around the life of God being breathed into a person. MacArthur in his commentary notes that this prayer is answered every time a sinner is regenerated. That unity is brought. That unity is contrived. That this this unity is is God-given and it is supernatural. It's not conjured up by people. We hear a lot about unity these days. Being unified around certain issues and and unfortunately, there's you know, a lot of push for interdenominational unity amongst people who consider them, themselves Christians, and many a part of certain denominations are not because they don't adhere to a true gospel. And so there's this push for unity, and what they mean by that is getting along and not fighting and, and not pointing out the differences, right? Not, not pointing out the fact that we don't actually believe the same gospel. In fact, we don't believe in the same God, and they want uni- unity so that we're not pointing out those things. So we're not being discerning about those things. That's, that's the unity of the world, and that's the unity of the quasi-Christian world, so to speak. No, the unity that Jesus is praying for is supernatural. It's, it's only given by God. And this unity that, that is created when a person is regenerated, so, so all of us who are in Christ here this morning, have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have, we have been brought into this unified group of believers, the body of Christ. This unity that happens in that moment then flows out into genuine relational unity that, that functions as a force that the world must reckon with. Now Jesus is praying for this. He's praying that they may be one even as we are. They needed to join hands in the right way as a force against all of the attacks of the enemy through the world. They needed to stand as those who belong to Christ. And Jesus prays that their unity will be a light for the gospel as it reflects the very unity of the triune Godhead. That's how we are to function as Christians. True believers are not to be known for all of their infighting and for all of their opinions that they hold so tightly to. True believers are to be unified in Christ. They are to be unified around the truth of the word of God. They are to be unified in a way that when the world looks at true believers... They don't see hypocrisy amongst their relationships. They see unity. Not that we agree on every single thing, but we are unified in the reality of who we belong to, who we serve, and how we are obedient to Christ. That's what Jesus is praying for. He's praying that his disciples will be unified. He's entrusting them to the Father because he, he is no longer going to be with them. See that in verse 12. He explains that that while he had been with his disciples, he had been keeping them spiritually. He had been guarding them spiritually, or physically rather. That's those two verbs there in verse 12. You have the idea of keeping them. We talked a little bit about that in terms of keeping them from apostasy, apostasy, keeping them from the spiritual attacks of the evil one, keeping them from those things. The idea of guarding even moves past that in terms of he he had guarded them physically. He had been taking careful measures to keep them from the wiles of the devil that came at them from the assaults of the Jewish leaders. Jesus himself had been with them. They were protected on all those occasions. In those years, his disciples weren't taken away from him. None of them were killed, talking of the 11. He had protected them. 
He says he hasn't lost any of his true disciples. Verse 12, only Judas. Described here as the son of perdition. One who was an apostate. He was, he was never a true disciple. It, it is very important that we understand this truth. Judas never truly believed in Christ. Jesus, I mean Judas, was never a true believer in Jesus. Judas did not trust in Jesus and then at this point fall away from Jesus. There was never genuine conversion in Judas. Judas is in hell. Okay? And it's not because Christ lost him. He makes that abundantly clear here. And we have that truth again in John 10. He had spoken of it before. <laughs> he says, I and the Father are one. He, he, he says that I hold them and the Father holds them. That all who belong to Christ are secure. That if you truly are in Christ, you are eternally secure. You can never work your way out of fellowship with Christ, out of a relationship with Christ. You can never work your way to hell if you are genuinely in Christ. The power that saves is the power that keeps. Judas was never a Christian. It's very important to understand that. There are different groups who teach that he was a Christian and he lost his salvation. It's impossible. And this happened, Jesus says there in verse 12, so that prophecy would be fulfilled, right? So that scriptures would be fulfilled. That's Psalm 41.9 and Psalm 109.8 speak of Judas's apostasy. This is another assertion of God's sovereign election and, and human responsibility spelled out in these verses. God saves whom he chooses. And those who reject Christ are responsible for their own demise. No person is going to stand before the great white throne and say, I'm not here, God, because you didn't choose me and have a leg to stand on. They're going to stand there being judged by God because they refused to believe in Christ. The reason that they will be eternally damned and separated from God is because of their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. That was Judas. These truths run parallel in these verses and the rest of Revelation. Judas wasn't a true disciple because he never truly believed as the other disciples did, which was mentioned in verse 6, as those who had kept his word. He had never done that. His heart was always hard, and he was captivated by the deceit of riches. We see another purpose stated in verse 13. Says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. The, the, these things that Jesus is referring to are the current things he is praying in his prayer. He is praying out loud in the disciples' presence in order to bring them joy. And we know that this joy, Jesus' joy, because you see that, he says, my joy, so real, genuine True joy. We know that this joy, after it takes a serious plunge over the next three days, as Jesus is arrested, tried, and executed, because they weren't super joyful during that time. After it takes a serious plunge, it then returns in a complete way to these men who go out into the world and preach Christ, regardless of the consequences that they face, even to the point of death. That's the story of all of the apostles. So Jesus tells them this, no doubt. They were filled with joy in this moment, even hearing these things from Jesus. We know the next three days was awful for them. But then we know as Jesus resurrected and he appeared before them, and then as he commissioned them, as he ascended to the Father, that they went, as Acts told us, and turned the world upside down. And they were full of joy. You see over and over, even 
Peter and John, when they were arrested and they were, they were flogged and they were beaten and then they were let go, it says they, they, they left being full of joy that they got to suffer on behalf of Christ. These men were overwhelmed with genuine joy. Not joy that was based on their circumstances because a lot of them had very bad circumstances at times in their lives after Jesus left them. But they had a genuine, deep-rooted joy that carried them all the way to their death. Because Jesus was praying these things for them. Jesus was, was committing these men to his Father so that, so that they would have his joy. Friends, we need to operate in our lives with the joy of Christ. Not joy based on circumstances. Not the world's joy. Not a happy feeling. But a genuine, God-centered, deep-rooted joy that, that is not tossed to and fro by what the world does to us. Jesus is praying that for these men. And we see that, that his prayer was answered. The Father secured their joy. And friends, the Father secures our joy in Christ. The final purpose that's stated is found in verses 14 through 16 is they will be protected from the evil one while they remain in this world. Christ gave them his word, verse 14 says, which they received and now they are hated by the world because of their allegiance to Christ. And the world system is ruled by the evil one. They are staying in the world. Jesus has said this over and over. They are staying in the world. Jesus, their protector, is leaving the world. Therefore, he prays that they would be kept from the evil one. They would be kept from Satan. And they must, as we must, stay in the world. But we are not of the world. Our light is to shine. And, and as the disciples' light was to shine. And in order for that to happen, believers must be guarded by God from being overtaken by the power of the evil one and from being corrupted by him and his system. Believers need to be preserved in this world. Why? Because this world is not their home. They are not of the world, Jesus says, even as I am not of the world. They need to make it. Friends, we need to make it to our eternal home. And it is the Father who is guarding these men. And it is the Father who is guarding us and keeping us so that we will make it to heaven. Our eternal home. Well, so much more can be said. This brings us to the final characteristic of Christ's eternal love expressed in this prayer found in those final three verses, 17 through 19, that I read. And it's this. It's his devoted love. It's his devoted love. You have his divine love. You have his his second one that I can't remember. And you have his devoted love. And let me just say that these verses, 17 through 19, deserve so much more than the couple minutes we have remaining. But for our purposes, I want you to understand this. That Christ's ultimate goal for his people is their sanctification. He petitions his Father to use the truth as the means to that end. Look at verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus asks his Father, here in verse 17, in this petition for sanctification, he asks his Father that his disciples and, and all believers by extension grow in holiness, that they grow in increased godliness. Sanctification is the concept of being separated unto God from sin, and it happens both positionally and progressively. And it is this progressive sanctification here in verse 17 that Jesus is praying for, that they will, they will grow in their likeness to Jesus Christ, to become more like Him. And the means by which Jesus asks for this to take place is His divine Word. Why? Because His Word is truth. So many places we could go in the scriptures to affirm that God's word is truth. 
But here in verse 17 is as clear as it gets. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is absolute truth. It's not about your truth. It's not about my truth. It's about the truth. Your truth about something, my truth about something matters not when it comes to the truth. The word is truth. What are the implications of this? First of all, we must accept it, believe it, and obey it. If this is indeed the truth, if this is indeed the means of sanctification, which we know it is because the the supreme divine Son of God is asking His Father to do this for His disciples, so we know this is true. And so if that's the case, we must accept this as truth, we must believe this as truth, and we must obey it as the truth. Secondly, it provides the standard for how we are to live. We don't come up with our own standard. We don't set our own rules. We conduct our lives according to the truth of the Word of God. Third, it dictates our priorities. We don't get to decide what matters most in our lives. The Bible declares what matters most in our lives. The Bible tells us that what matters to us most as believers is the Lord Jesus Christ. What matters to us is our families. What matters to us is the church. Things that are way down at the bottom of the list are are our wants and our desires and those things that serve us. This word dictates our priorities. Fourth, it it is to be the highest authority in our lives. There is no other authority that is higher than this. There are other authorities that we submit to. You've submitted to your parents. You've submitted to teachers, to professors. You've submitted to law enforcement. You've submitted to elders in the church. You've submitted to all kinds of people. But there is no higher authority than the Word of God. Fifth, we are to commit ourselves to a lifetime of knowing it and understanding it. If God's worth is absolute truth, <laughs> if this is true, that sanctification comes by the means of the truth, and His Word is truth, well, then this ought to be our life, friends. This ought to be our life. Nothing should take the place of this. We ought to know this. We ought to meditate on this. We ought to memorize this. We ought to to soak in this and and to live this. Because God's God's word is truth. And when we live according to his word in those ways, when those implications are, are true for us, God sanctifies us. He changes us. He he makes us more like his son. He makes us more holy. This is the means, friends. This is why he prays this to his father on behalf of these men. This is his greatest desire for his people on this planet. Is that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ. And he has given us the means. We're not to guess. We're not to come up with things on our own. We are to get into this book and know it and live by it. And when we do, he transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. We desperately need this. We see that we need this in verse 18. The purpose of this petition Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. The disciples were being sent into a world that is seeking to corrupt them, just as we are in a world that is seeking to corrupt us. Believers need to be sanctified by the word. Why? So that they can resist the temptation of the world and that they can be a force for the truth in the world. We need to be sanctified. And so if we need this book, we need this truth, we we can't just operate without it. We can't just mindlessly go about our business as if this doesn't exist. This world will corrupt us to the core. 
without the truth. Jesus says they are going into the world. They must be sanctified by your truth. A believer who gets corrupted by the world, friends, is useless. We see that in Paul's letter to Timothy. Friends, you and I must be continually sanctified by the truth. It must consume us if we are going to fulfill our purpose for being on this planet, which is what? Which is to glorify God and to point others to Him. Finally, I want you to note in verse 19, the propitiatory bedrock for sanctification. The propitiatory bedrock for sanctification. Look at verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. For their sakes. That is to say, for for the disciples' divine qualification and enablement to be sanctified, Jesus says. They can't do it on their own. We've already learned that. It's the Father who gave them to Christ. They're not producing their own sanctification. So he says, for their divine qualification and enablement to be sanctified, he says, I sanctify myself that they themselves may be sanctified in the truth. Christ was about to sanctify himself. This is an allusion to to his imminent sacrificial death on the cross. This was about to happen. He's going to offer himself as a sacrifice so that his disciples and all believers then can be qualified and empowered to be sanctified. What an incredible truth. What incredibly devoted love that Jesus expresses to these men whom he was about to leave. Our sanctification as believers is contingent solely on the substitutionary sacrifice of the divine Lord Jesus Christ. We don't get sanctified if Christ had not sanctified himself By offering himself as a sacrifice for us. His work. Or rather his person and his work. Enables our holiness. That's why. That's why we're told in Isaiah. That those who try to work for their salvation. That 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 righteousness is as filthy rags. There can be no holiness without the bedrock of holiness, without that propitiation, that that satisfaction of God's divine wrath made on behalf of sinners. There cannot be holiness. You cannot be sanctified if you are not in Christ. It is impossible. So Christ prays here in verse 19. He says, Father, I sanctify myself so that these men, they themselves can be sanctified, will be sanctified. Believer, this is the devoted love of your Savior expressed to you. There's no greater love than this. But if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you haven't believed in Jesus like the disciples did. Maybe you're like Judas. Maybe you're playing the game. Maybe you're in the crowd. Maybe there's not a soul around you, sitting around you right now, who has any idea that you have rejected Christ in your heart. Maybe that's you. Let me be clear. The reality of what Jesus has just said, is that you will not be sanctified. And Hebrews tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You will not see the Lord in the way that you want to see the Lord. You will be judged by Him and you will be cast away from His presence. So I plead with you. to repent from your sin, to believe upon Christ, to believe upon the one who sanctified himself, that you may be sanctified, gave himself 
has a sacrifice for your sin, paid the penalty that you deserve to pay, come to him. Find rest for your souls. Find forgiveness. And you will be sanctified. And you will see the Lord. You need to come to the Messiah that you have rejected. Don't end your life as someone like Judas who never came to know Christ. But for those of you in Christ, rest assured. Rest assured. Your Savior is continuing his high priestly work that he manifested in the upper room on a moment-by-moment basis for you right now in heaven. He is praying for you. Be overjoyed and assured by this truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible prayer that we get to have revealed to us the most intimate prayer in the scriptures the <clears throat> no doubt the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed and for giving us the opportunity to examine it certainly father on almost a flyover surface level but getting to examine it nonetheless, getting to to have the truth penetrate our hearts. And that's what I ask, God. I ask that, that for those who are in Christ this morning will be overjoyed and encouraged by the truth that, that we've been taught. That assurance will, will overflow in their hearts. And that they will be exhorted to excel still more as they pursue sanctification by the means of your truth. Help us to love Jesus more. And Father, for those who aren't in Christ, I pray that you will convict their hearts, that you will make them uncomfortable and restless and not able to go on until they deal with the reality that they are not in Christ and you will bring them to yourself and grant them forgiveness and hope and joy found only in your son. We ask these things knowing that you hear our prayers, that you answer our prayers according to your will. And thank you for that in Christ's name, amen.